You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Man, if you're able to remain standing, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Feel free to sit down at any time. If you're able to stand, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. The older I get, the more I search and long for things that are sure, solid. And the older I get, the things I thought were sure and solid crumble. But one thing remains, solid. Let's read from his sermon. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word. Please be seated. As we have just read, we are continuing in our study of the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And we come to the final words, the final portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Not surprisingly, Jesus has reserved his most consequential words for the end of his sermon. As we said last week, like a good preacher, Jesus has been leading his listeners to make a decision about him. Jesus doesn't allow the fog of indecision to linger for those who hear his words. He wants them and he wants us to make a decision now about Jesus. 
There is a clear invitation and a clear warning. This came to us in our text last week. The invitation was to follow him on the narrow and hard path. To follow him on the narrow and hard path that leads to life. Sadly, we're told that few find it. Then after Jesus gives the invitation to follow him on the wide, or rather the narrow and hard path, Jesus gives a grave warning. He says, the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction, and those who find it are many. I've said this before, but the difficulty with this metaphor of the two gates and the two paths, it's not its complexity. It's not because it's hard to understand. The difficulty with this portion of the Sermon on the Mount is its clarity. It's very easy to understand. Jesus' point is clear. Every one of us, everyone who has walked planet Earth will walk one of these two paths. That's it. There's not a fourth or a fifth or a third option. It's the narrow path or the wide path. And Jesus wants to force his audience then and now to make a decision about him. Which path? And with this gate and path metaphor again fresh on our minds, Jesus ends his sermon in our text this morning with two very serious warnings, followed by one very hopeful promise. In fact, that's going to be our sermon outline this morning. Two very serious warnings followed by one very hopeful promise. I pray the Lord gives us all ears to hear what Jesus is saying to his church this morning. Well, the first warning is about false prophets. This is point one in the sermon. False prophets. Beware of false prophets. Look at verse 15 again. Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. When I think of a false prophet, and again, I think I've said this before on this particular section, when I think of a false prophet in our day, maybe you're a bit like me, I think of someone who is in a really expensive suit, probably on TV, probably working up a sweat as he or she preaches and probably trying to get people to send them what? Money, money, because they've got a prayer rug or they've got some kind of oil that they've blessed. And, and so when I think of a false prophet, I think of somebody like that sort of conjuring up, sort of some sort of swindler like that, obvious to, to see. Or maybe when you think of a false prophet, you think of a cult leader, Right, somebody who is, is leading, deceiving masses of people with outright heresies, denying the deity of Christ or the efficacy of the gospel. You need, to, you need to add to the gospel in this way. Yes, Jesus plus this equals this. You, you and I say false prophet, cult leader, obvious. Of course, both of these, the snake oil salesman preacher on TV and the obvious cult leader are false prophets. But listen, This is not who Jesus is talking about in verse 15. These are not the kind of false prophets that Jesus is warning his church about. Notice again the false prophets that Jesus is warning us of are wolves that are in sheep's clothing. They're not the obvious ones. They're not the one in the $2,000 suit sweating and asking you for money. 
Those are the ones you, you should change the channel, like, like right away. But instead, Jesus is talking about those who are deceiving the church. They're deceiving well-meaning Christians who want to believe. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, quote, knowing that Christians are credulous people, meaning we are eager to believe. Knowing that Christians are credulous people, the false prophet conceals his dark purpose beneath the cloak of his Christian piety, hoping that his innocuous disguise will avert attention. The false prophets described by Christ are hard to spot. They are deceiving. They project humility and piety. They give. They serve. But underneath it all, they are bent inward on self-interest. And their ends are devastating. Their ends are devastating. They're not only deceiving, but they're devastating. Notice that Jesus says inwardly, these false prophets are like ravenous wolves. What a description, a ravenous wolf. I don't want to be in the presence of a wolf, let alone a ravenous one. That word ravenous means they're greedy plunderers. On the outside, they may appear to be very sheep-like, very humble, very thank you very much-like, very, yes, but inside, they want to devour, they want to plunder, they want to feed themselves. Wolves, as you know, are the natural or a natural enemy to a sheep. Sheep have innumerable natural enemies, (laughs) which is why we're always scared. Wolves are natural enemies to sheep, but without a shepherd, they are defenseless to their attack, defenseless. The apostle Paul, an under-shepherd, an apostle in the first century church, was concerned about wolves that would come into the church in Ephesus after he would leave. This is what Paul writes in Acts chapter 20. We should have these verses on the screen, but if not, just listen. Acts 20, verses 29 and 30, Paul is writing, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, here's the point, to draw away the disciples after them. This is, the, this is always the end goal of a wolf, to draw Christians away from the church, to isolate them. If you can isolate the sheep, they're easier to get get them out of fellowship, get them out of community, get them out of their familiar protection. And then they can have their way, devour. And the reason, listen, the reason that Jesus and the rest of the New Testament is warning us, the church, about wolves in sheep's clothing is because it's real. It's real. It really happens. This kind of thing really happens. Notice Jesus doesn't say if and when. Paul doesn't say if and when wolves come. It's an assumption that the enemies of the church will come against her. They are deceiving and their effects are devastating. And the worst thing we could do is ignore the warning. Now, Jesus not only gives us the warning that wolves in sheep's clothing exist, but he also, he also gives us eyes and ears on how to spot them. 
So he's, he's not, just, not just banking on the, the preachers or the under-shepherds to, to kick all the wolves in the, in the teeth. Sometimes the wolf is the preacher. So the congregation, every spirit-indwelt believer needs to be aware of who are the wolves. And here Jesus gives us, he gives us insight on how to spot them. Look at verse 16 and following. Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Verse 18, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's, that's a picture of judgment. Thus, verse 20, you will recognize them, the false prophets, the wolves in sheep's clothing. You will recognize them by their fruits. Notice, Jesus uses in this short paragraph a word twice, to recognize, epigonosko in, in the Greek, to recognize. He uses it twice. You will recognize them, the false prophets, by their fruits. The word epigonosko in the Greek means to come to know something by experience. So you come to know something by intimate experience, by being around them for an amount of time. It seems to me that Jesus is saying you will spot a false prophet over time. Maybe not at first glance, but over time. It won't be obvious at first, but eventually what is hidden on the inside will come into plain view. A healthy tree bears good fruit. A diseased tree bears bad fruit. In other words, you can deceive people for a time. But the substance of one's heart, their character, isn't this been the whole Sermon on the Mount? What is on the inside? The substance of one heart, one's heart, the character will eventually be revealed. It's only a matter of time. As another writes, quote, no tree can hide its identity for long. Sooner or later, it betrays itself. It's going to bear fruit. A wolf can disguise itself indefinitely, but Jesus gives us another helpful metaphor. A tree is eventually going to show itself. What's on the inside will move to the outside. So that's the first warning, and it's a serious warning. Beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. The second warning, point two, is related to the first, and that is a warning about false assurance. False assurance. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then, verse 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Beloved, I have not found 
in all of the Bible more unsettling words than these. To say you know Jesus and at the same time for him not to know you is some of the most unsettling words I can imagine. J.C. Ryle's remarks, he says, quote, Jesus turns from false prophets to now false professors from unsound teachers to unsound hearers. Jesus reveals to us the startling reality that there are those in the church who masquerade themselves as genuine followers of Christ but are in fact not Christians at all. So if you this morning found yourself feeling insulated from the warning about false prophets and false preachers, none of us will find that same protection in this text. This warning is for all of us who profess Christ. The alarming reality that this text suggests is that you can be up to your elbows in the Christian faith. You can lead a small group. You can volunteer in the children's ministry. You can preach sermons as I'm preaching right now. You can even cast out demons in the name of Jesus and be a million miles away from him. Again, you may know his name and speak of it often, but he doesn't know yours. Well, this warning breaks down into some more troubling things. First, Jesus says, simple lip service to right theology is not enough. Whew. Lip service to right theology is not enough. He says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's right theology. To come to Jesus to say, Lord, but it's the double superlative. It's Lord, Lord, you're earnest about your theology. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter that you go to Roots Community Church and they're solid in their theology. Jesus is echoing here in verse 21. He's echoing Isaiah 29 when God says to his wayward people, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Lord, Lord, Jesus says, so what? Now listen, sound theology is vitally important. It is a matter of life and death that we get the core tenets of the gospel right. Sound theology is vitally important. But listen, if that theology has not pierced your heart and changed your direction in life, not so that you're perfect, that's not what I'm saying, but so that you're different, you're changed, you taste 
your taste buds have changed. The direction of your heart and attitude has changed. If that theology hasn't pierced your heart and changed your life, then it is utterly useless. In fact, God says in Isaiah chapter 1 that it makes him nauseous. For us to go around saying, Lord, Lord, with our hands raised, with not without hearts that have been pierced, it makes God sick. Instead, Jesus says, show me someone who does the will of my Father. Show me someone who does the will of my Father. That's a key phrase. That's a key phrase. What does it mean to do the will of the Father? We don't have to guess. John chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus writes there, Jesus says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What is the will of the Father? Believe in the Son. Not just profess him with his mouth. What does it mean to believe in something? The the synonym to believe is trust. I use this all the time and I'm stealing it from R.C. Sproul or someone. But you don't say, I believe that chair is going to hold me and then never sit in it. That's professing something with your lips, but your heart is far from it. You believe that that chair is going to hold you when you sit in it. When you release your strength, that's what it means to sit down. You're releasing your strength and you're counting on the strength of another. That's what biblical belief is. It is releasing your strength and leaning on the strength of God. What is the will of the Father? Believe in the Son. That's the will of the Father. That's how to do the will of the Father. Believe. Sit in the chair. And of course, true belief in the Son will produce more than changed vocabulary. It will result in a changed life. So listen, it is false assurance to conclude that having a right theology is enough. You can confess right truths about God and your heart can be utterly unaffected by the confession. So then you and I are tempted to conclude, aren't we, that if it's not just our, our, our mouths, it's got to be our behavior. It's got to be our actions, right? It's actions, actions, actions. We conclude that assurance is found in acts of righteousness, right? That's where everyone goes. Not Jesus. Look at verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we got right theology, Did we not prophesy in your name, preach Christ? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And look at, do many mighty works in your name. Verse 23, Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Where do we go from here? 
Another writes, quote, we must never, this is huge, we must never confuse our gifts with saving grace. Preachers do this often. Let me just let you in on something. The more successful or big or more influenced the church is, the better we feel about ourselves. This text pulls the rug right out from underneath us in that. We must never confuse our gifts, our talents, our natural dispositions even, with that of saving grace. We must not confuse the impact of our gifts with the evidence of salvation. Again, just like good theology is not enough. Or rather, just like good theology is essential, rather. In the life of the Christian, so are works of righteousness. Works of righteousness are important. Obedience is important. Jesus himself will say later, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. James says, faith without works is what? Dead. Why do we, everybody knows that one. <laughs> it's so pithy. Faith without works is Dead. So we know Jesus is not eliminating the necessity of good works in the life of the believer. However, Jesus is saying no works of righteousness, even the greatest works, can ever be the basis of your salvation, your entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Good works will bear witness to you being saved, but they are not the reason you are saved. They are not the basis. They are the, the witness. Mere theology won't save you. Lord, Lord won't save you. Mere obedience, even remarkable acts of righteousness. I've never cast a demon out of someone. But Jesus says, even if you're able to do that, it's not enough. So then again, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're left again. We're left going, what do we do? Where do we go? How do I build my life? If it's not my mere confession, if it's not my mere works, what do I do? Jesus, where do I go? You're, you're, you're taking all of my, my ammo out. Where is assurance? What is solid? Where is the rock upon which we can build our lives? Well, after these two severe warnings that Jesus gives about false prophets and false assurance... Jesus now gives us, as we close, one massive, huge promise. And the promise is of assurance. Look at verses 24 to 27. Everyone then, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, verse 25, and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall. Why, Jesus? Because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone, verse 26, who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. 
the final illustration from the most famous sermon ever preached by the famous, most famous preacher who ever lived, the final illustration from Christ is so familiar, isn't it? And it's so clear. It's so, it's brilliant. Two homes, two homes, one built on the rock and one built on the sand. The one built on the rock stands, the one built on the sand falls. Done. Simple, easy. We can close, we can be done. But like everything else that Jesus says, if you stare at it longer, more details, more nuance, more truth comes out. He is the author of brilliance. Don't be a fool. Simple enough. Build your life on, on, on the rock. Don't be a fool. Build, don't build your life on the shifting sands of human wisdom. What makes this illustration so unnerving, at least for me, insightful, unnerving, whatever, maybe I'm just negative, unnerving, and helpful, <laughs> it's not necessarily the differences between the two builders and the two homes. What makes this so insightful and a bit unnerving is their similarities. Both builders hear the word. Both hear the word. One hears and builds on rock. One hears and builds on sand. They're similar in that way. I take that to mean that both builders are in the place where God's word is being taught. Or they're at least reading God's word for themselves. They hear God's word. They're listening. In addition, both have ambitions to build a house. And presumably, they want to build the house in a similar location because it seems like the same storm hits both houses. It also doesn't appear that there are differences regarding the kind of house that is built. I think it's safe to assume that both houses are similar in appearance. Yet, despite of all their similarities... They both hear the word. They both decide to build a house. They both build the house in the same area and both are hit by the same storm. Despite their similarities, these two homes have drastically different outcomes. One is unmoved when it is beat by the storm and one is completely destroyed. Great, mega in the Greek. Mega was the fall of it. And again, what's so troubling in this illustration is that these houses appear from what you and I could see. They appear to be the same. They appear the same. But the point is, and this has been the point throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, what appears on the outside only proves to be superficial when the storm comes. You can have all of the bells and whistles. You can have a beautiful home and all of the expensive siding and clay roof tile and solar panels. How many solar panel salesmen are there in the world now? I get a solar panel salesman like every Saturday. You can have all of that, all of the solar panels, all of the things, a carport to plug in your electric vehicle, all of the things. 
But without a solid foundation, it all means nothing because the house won't stand. And so Jesus says, it's the wise man who builds on the rock with a foundation, something more durable than the home. And it's the wise man or woman. We've, we've covered this again before, but please, beloved, don't confuse wisdom with IQ. They are not the same thing. Don't confuse wisdom with intelligence. Again, I think I've made this remark before. If, if we are to equate wisdom with intelligence, what do we do with all of the degrees that are floating around Congress right now? And they can't get anything done. Not a lot of wisdom, a lot of degrees. Not a lot of wisdom, not the same thing. Are we tracking? Jesus is not saying that it is the smart person who builds on a rock. So if you're inclined to intelligence, you're a smart person. Congratulations. He's not saying, oh, good, I just need to build on a rock. Oh, oh, good, I'll just take those. No, no, no. It's not intelligence. Wisdom is rightly applying truth in life. Wisdom is rightly applying truth in life. And furthermore, listen, Jesus' illustration shows shows us that wisdom is most often not the easiest path. Wisdom is not always or often the easiest path. Let me show you this uh, illustration. This is from Luke chapter 6. This is the same, this is the parallel section in Luke's gospel again. Jesus is talking about the two homes, and he adds a little bit more detail. Luke does adds a little bit more detail. This is in verse 47 and 48. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house. Here's the key phrase that's not in Matthew, but in Luke. Who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against that house and and it could not shake it because it had been well built. So the wise man or the wise woman is one building a home that is not cutting corners, that is not trying to find the fastest way to erect a building. No, he or she is digging down They're doing that inefficient work of digging down, that monotonous daily Wednesday afternoon grind of digging down. The work that nobody wants to do. We want to put the roof on. We want to put the windows in. Nobody wants to dig down. But the wise man or woman is digging down. Why? To get to the bedrock. And then from the bedrock, which is stronger than the house, Then they begin to build. But the fool says, why dig? I have a life hack. (laughs) Here's a, just build on the sand. Look, there's a house there on the sand. It hasn't fallen. Look, there's a house over there. It's been standing for 30 years. It hasn't fallen. Look, there's another one over there. It hasn't fallen. And besides, the storms around here are not that strong. We don't get those east winds like they do on the other side. We don't get those west swells like they do on that side. Look, look, look. Here, just stop the digging. 
that looks like hard work, and just build on the sand. The application is perfectly clear, isn't it? It's brilliant. See, I mean, just three sentences fills libraries of insight that Jesus provides. The application is clear. These two homes represent two lives, two human lives. And these two people can be in the same church, hearing the same message, and one will say, I don't actually need to do the work of discipleship and foundation building. I can just take some of the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, fold them into my life, kind of sprinkle it onto my ambitions in life, and go. On the other hand, the other listener of God's word is compelled by the reality of their own weakness. They are convinced that their house won't stand without a rock. They're compelled by the reality of their own weakness and their need for Christ and his church, and they are convinced that they cannot do this thing on their own, and so they ask, they seek, they knock, they dig, they dig until they find something more solid than themselves. Their weakness, in other words, becomes their strength. Do you see how this goes? This is the economy of God's kingdom. Our weakness becomes our strength when we're convinced that our house won't stand. That I am poor and needy, but God takes thought from me. You're going to dig deeper. It's not about do more, try harder, dig deeper. It's about embrace your weakness. And that will cause you to dig. That will cause you to go to the rock that is higher than you. That will cause you. Not strengthening of yourself. That's weakness. That's a fool. A fool says, my house will stand. I don't need anything stronger than itself. I'm just going to build right here. A fool. The wise men and women seek out the bedrock. Seek discipleship. Seek out the means of grace in the church. Ask questions. Constantly knocking on the door of heaven. I don't trust myself. I'm a child. I need. The wise man and woman dig deep, not because they have it all figured out. Not because they're smart. They dig down deep because they're wise and they know their need is great. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the catch is both of these lives look identical. Both of these lives look identical until the storm hits. Until conflict comes, illness, cancer, sorrow, all of which breach the threshold of your home. Miscarriages, illness, death, all shatter the window panes. And you can't hold back the water. It just keeps coming. And as soon as the foundation slips, the walls lose plumb, the roof loses plumb, and it all comes crashing down. And it was a beautiful house. The life that stands is the life that dug into the rock of ages. That's what I want for my heart. That's what I want for you, for all of you. 
as long as God would have me be a pastor at this church, I want us to dig down deep to the rock of ages. No matter what, no matter what season, we dig down deep together because the storm is coming. None of these illustrations are an if-when. It's that it's coming. And this, as I close, is the paradox of the Christian life, isn't it? This is the paradox, meaning two things that feel like they're at odds, but they're not. When God has graciously made you aware of your need for him, you will work harder to keep Christ at the center of your life. This final illustration in the Sermon on the Mount is a summation, I believe, of all that this great sermon has been pointing to. This is a summation of all that this whole Sermon on the Mount has been pointing to. Build your life upon the rock that is Christ. Let everything else go. If you have riches, praise the Lord. Don't trust in them. Don't you dare trust in them. If you have a healthy relationship with kids, great, praise the Lord. Don't bank on them. If you have a solid job and you've been there for 20, 30 years in a 401k, praise the Lord for that. Don't bank on it. It's not solid enough. It's not a foundation that'll hold. It's just not. This illustration Final illustration from Christ is a summation of all that this sermon has been pointing to. In fact, the preacher of this sermon becomes for his listeners the point of his sermon. The preacher is the point. Not this preacher, this preacher. Jesus is the point of his sermon. Jesus is the one who satisfies the hungry. He's the one who gives drink to the thirsty. He's the one who comforts the mourning. Are you mourning this morning? Are you in knots over what the future will hold for you? Are you in despair of what you've done in the past? The preacher of this sermon, Christ himself, comforts you. He is the bread of life, and he is the water that finally satisfies. He is the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He is the keeper and therefore the fulfillment of the law. He is the perfect one. He is the giver. He is the intercessor between heaven and earth that makes our prayers acceptable to God. He is the intercessor. He is the treasure in heaven. He is the calm for the anxious. He is the one judged. He is the one judged for having a plank in his eye though he didn't even have a speck. That's the cross. He was judged as a sinner, and yet he was spotless. He is the Son of God. He is the one who came to love his neighbor as himself. He is the one who walked the narrow way, and he is the narrow way. He is the true prophet. He is the good shepherd, and he is the good tree that bears good fruit, and he does not stop bearing good fruit. And finally, he is the judge of all, and he is the one who said, Build your life on me, the rock of ages. Jesus is for his listeners everything his sermon points to. Blessed are those. Blessed are those who discover their great need for him 
and build their entire lives upon the rock who is Christ. May it be so. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we have nothing. We have nothing sure apart from the work of your son. We thank you for wonderful gifts in life. We thank you for happiness and joy and people and places and things. And we're grateful for all of it, Lord. But do not let our wandering hearts build on them. They're not strong enough to hold our lives. They're not strong enough to hold the weight of our affections. They're not strong enough for the storm that is coming. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you move deeply in the hearts and minds and ears of the listeners to your sermon this morning that we might build upon the rock who is Christ. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.